Parkinson's disease is a neurodegenerative disease that causes motor and non-motor symptoms, such as tremor, slowed movements, and stiffness, as well as many other symptoms. As Parkinson's disease is chronic and progressive, the early stages differ from the moderate to later stages of the disease. How does one best treat later stage Parkinson's? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, Director of Foothill Psychiatry in Boise, Idaho, your host, and with me today is Dr. Robert Hauser. Dr. Hauser is Professor of Neurology, Pharmacology, and Experimental Therapeutics at the University of South Florida College of Medicine in Tampa. He also serves at the university as Director of the Clinical Interdisciplinary Program in Neuroscience and is Director of the Parkinson's Disease and Movement Disorder Center which is recognized by the National Parkinson's Foundation as a center of excellence. Welcome to ReachMD. Oh, thank you, Leslie. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Dr. Hauser, what are the initial motor symptoms of Parkinson's, and how do they change over time? Yeah, the initial symptoms of Parkinson's disease are bradykinesia, which is slowness of movement. It includes not only slowness, but small movements and decrementing or progressive slowing of movement over time as well as rigidity or stiffness, and tremor. The tremor is usually a rest tremor, which means it comes out with the arm relaxed in the lap or hanging by the side when walking. And how do these change over time? Well, when we see a patient and can make a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, we're likely to introduce medication, and patients typically will get a good response. We can dose medication three or four times a day, and medication lasts from dose to dose. Ultimately, patients require... Levodopa, which is the strongest medication with the fewest side effects, levodopa goes up to the brain, is converted to dopamine, and is slowly released over time. So initially, patients get a good response that lasts many hours, but the thing that really changes over time is they find that this, the length of that response progressively shortens. So they may find the levodopa is only lasting four hours, then a little bit later may only be lasting three and a half hours, and then three hours. And ultimately, it shortens to match the pharmacokinetics of levodopa with its short half-life of only 90 minutes. The other thing that happens is many patients develop a sensitivity to levodopa where when levodopa is peaking in blood and dopamine is peaking in brain, patients get twisting, turning movements called dyskinesia or chorea. So it looks to the patient, looks to the physician like there's a progressive narrowing of the therapeutic window. So the dose may change as well as the timing of the dose. That's right. Once patients have this problem, you you may feel the need to try to increase medication to treat the wearing off when uh, symptoms reemerge. But when you do that, they get more dyskinesia. On the other hand, if you try to reduce medication because of the dyskinesia, they tend to get more Parkinsonian signs and symptoms. So just as you suggested, one of the things we do is give smaller doses of levodopa more frequently. And to some extent, that works until you get up to probably five doses a day, at which time noncompliance sort of shoots up. So we use other medications in association with levodopa to try and overcome those problems, the so-called adjunct medications like dopamine agonists, MAOB inhibitors, COMT inhibitors, and amantadine. So let's go through those augmentation strategies uh, one at a time. So dopamine agonists, those would be which? The dopamine agonists that are available currently include uh, pramipexol, ropinerol, and just recently there was approval for the rotigotine patch. And any reason to use one over the other? Well, I think they're all pretty 
similar. They're all approved to help reduce off time or time when levodopa benefit has worn off in patients who are experiencing those motor fluctuations. Sounds like there might be a a clinical advantage to the patch, though, to get more consistent delivery. Well, uh, I think that remains to be proven. Uh, It looks like by trying to provide nice, continuous stimulation of dopamine receptors, it may help us do two things. Number one, it may help us stay within that therapeutic window and may help buffer against the fluctuations from levodopa. So that's one issue. The other issue is that it looks like the development of the shortened duration of levodopa and the development of dyskinesia are related to the pulsatile stimulation of levodopa. And we're interested in whether these dopamine agonists can, number one, uh, delay that process if we use them before levodopa. And number two, can we, to some extent, reverse the process once patients already have this problem? Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned MAOB inhibitors. Which would those be? Uh, these include risagiline, which is approved for early and later disease, and selegiline. Selegiline has been available in oral formulation for many years and uh, just recently was approved in the Zytus formulation, which is uh, placed on the tongue, is absorbed in the saliva, and then is absorbed through the buccal mucosa. Now, we have a transdermal MAO in psychiatry that we use. Are you able to use that as well for Parkinson's? Well, it's not approved for Parkinson's disease, and you need to be uh, careful because if you increase the dose of any of the MAOB inhibitors too much, they lose their selectivity for MAOB and begin to inhibit MAOA. So the patch at the doses that uh, are currently approved are likely to be in that range where MAOA is inhibited, so it's not recommended that it be used in Parkinson's disease. And then you start running into the drug and food interactions, correct? Yes, and it's not only those interactions, but potentially levodopa could interact uh, with it to cause a uh, so-called cheese effect or hypertensive crisis. Mm -hmm. So other than dopamine agonists, MAOB inhibitors, what other uh, augmentation strategies? Well, there are COMT inhibitors. Uh, Levodopa in the blood is metabolized in part by catechol O-methyltransferase, and this is really just a waste of levodopa. So if we block that enzyme with COMT inhibitors, we send more levodopa up to the brain over a longer time. So these are like uh, levodopa boosters. And those that are available now include enticapone and tocopone. Tocopone is more efficacious, but it also is associated with potential hepatotoxicity and does require liver function monitoring. And then you mentioned amantadine as well? Amantadine, yeah. Amantadine has really... uh, enjoyed recent uh, re-evaluation, and it's the one medication we have that can both reduce off time and reduce dyskinesia. So it's become a very important medication for patients with advanced disease. The negative is that it's relatively good at inducing hallucinations. So uh, generally, it's avoided in patients who already have hallucinations, and you also need to be careful in patients who have vivid dreaming. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is Dr. Robert Hauser, who currently serves on the executive committee of the Parkinson's Study Group and is a member of the steering committee for the NIH Exploratory Trials in Parkinson's Disease. We are discussing managing late-stage Parkinson's disease. Uh, Dr. Hauser, what are the causes of long-term disability in Parkinson's disease patients? It turns out that the causes of long-term disability are really uh, several types. One is bad motor fluctuations and dyskinesias. This generally occurs in young onset patients. 
For older patients, the main causes of disability long-term are dementia and imbalance. And right now, we don't really have any good treatment for imbalance once it's present. For dementia, we borrow the medications from uh, Alzheimer's disease that include uh, the cholinesterase inhibitors and uh, the NMDA receptor antagonists. But uh, they help some, but not enough over the long term. So uh, these are important problems that we really need to figure out ways to overcome. How about uh, depression and Parkinson's? Depression is very common in Parkinson's disease. Through the disease, it affects 40 to 50% of patients. The good news is, however, that uh, it does appear to be quite amenable to typical general depression-type medications, so we do use them uh, rather frequently in Parkinson's disease. How about other things like uh, excessive sleepiness? Is that a problem in long-term treatment of Parkinson's disease? Well, it can occur any time in Parkinson's disease. Excessive daytime sleeping has several causes that can appear in Parkinson's disease. Firstly, the disease itself is associated with sleepiness. So if you look at Parkinson's disease patients, even untreated, and compare them to age and sex match controls, you'll find they're more sleepy. Then in addition, the dopaminergic medications, particularly the dopamine agonists, can clearly worsen sleepiness, and patients may also have sleep disorders. So in my approach to sleepiness and Parkinson's disease, I look to see if patients are on dopamine agonists. If they are, I may reduce them or stop them. If sleepiness persists, I may get an overnight sleep test to see if there's another cause. And if I don't identify a particular cause, then I may introduce a wake-promoting medication like modafinil. Now, modafinil certainly is one option. How about other things that are wake-promoting, like caffeine or stimulants? Yeah, much less well studied in in Parkinson's disease, so we don't really know. know. I know there are a few clinical trials going on looking at that, and I think we need to wait and see what those results show. Now, how has the understanding of Parkinson's evolved over the last 50 years? I know you're very involved in the research. Yeah, I think the big thing is that uh, in the past we talked about slowness, stiffness, and tremor. We talked about dopamine and dopamine neurons. But I think our vision of Parkinson's disease is really expanding. In one way, it's expanding because of pathologic studies that show that the pathology of Parkinson's disease actually starts in the lower brain stem and the olfactory bulb And then over time, it ascends in the brainstem to affect the dopamine area and then ultimately affects the cortex. And this uh, fits rather nicely with some of the clinical features of Parkinson's disease that occur very early, including loss of sense of smell, sleep disorders, especially REM behavior disorders. So we're beginning to pay more attention to earlier non-motor features and beginning to understand more about how it correlates with the pathology. And what's happening in terms of research for treatments or even possibly a cure? I think the biggest uh, area to think about here are the genetic causes of Parkinson's disease that have been uncovered. There's research going on in laboratories around the world trying to decipher how these gene mutations actually cause the disease process. And I think by understanding those, we may be able to come up with ways to stop those processes. How about transplants? Transplants, we have a long history of uh, doing transplants here in Tampa. Transplants, I think, are going to be difficult, uh, particularly in light of the recognition of the widespread areas of involvement in Parkinson's disease. When our view was really restricted to dopamine neurons in the midbrain, uh, transplant therapies seemed more reasonable. Now that we recognize it's through the brainstem, it's involving the cortex over time, 
transplant strategies see more of a uh, stretch. Now, where can physicians learn about Parkinson's? I hear there's a great web resource. Yeah, there's uh, one that is the uh, Movement Disorders Virtual University website, which is mdvu.org. And this was a website developed by the organization We Move that's geared toward educating physicians and the healthcare community. And then there's a parallel website called wemove.org, which is geared toward informing patients. I'd like to thank our guest today, Dr. Robert Hauser. We've been discussing managing late-stage Parkinson's disease. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. 